We come to you now and we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, Wednesdays as we do each week, just a time in the middle of the week to be able to stop and uh, sit together and open the word to, to worship you in song, uh, to come to you in prayer and to, to really seek to understand you more so that we can um, be used by you for your glory and for the forward movement of your kingdom. Lord, I pray uh, for our time tonight in Esther that it would be um, edifying, encouraging, um, that it would do what you want it to do. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move, um, that you would speak uh, with you know, the voice that obviously we can't always hear audibly, but that obviously informs us um, in our circumstances. Uh, we also pray uh, for the Kelsos as uh, she's in labor tonight and um, pray that the baby would um, come quickly and uh, without complication. And I pray for health for, uh, for both of them. Uh, Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to warn you ahead of time that because this entire book of Esther is, it's 10 chapters of detailed narrative, and there's no good stopping point. So we're going to cover it tonight. We're going to do it. But we're going to have to be on board, be on the same page, everybody ready to put on their, their boots or whatever, big boy, big girl pants, whatever you have to do because we're going to do a lot of reading tonight, um, a fair amount of reading. So work hard to listen and to hang in there. There's really no good stopping point, and it's 10 chapters of detailed narrative. So that's a, that's a warning up front, um, but you should be excited because what we're reading is the Bible. So that shouldn't discourage you at all, Christians. So has anyone ever had an entire week where they didn't encounter any trouble? You're on sabbatical, doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you just sitting there. Yeah, yeah that's funny right there. Um, what about a day? Even just a day trouble-free if you're not on sabbatical. It, it seems like um, it's been said that trouble seems to be the common lot of humanity. Now, that, that may not seem like the most encouraging opening line for a study that trouble seems to be the common lot for humanity. Um, but, but a question I want us to consider before we dive into the text is, what are some of the desperate and dire circumstances that people face throughout the course of their lives? The really hard seasons, what are some of those? Illness, yeah, that's a big one. Death. What else? Job loss. What else? Family issues. What else? Addiction. What else? Violence, unfairness, persecution. There's a number of things. Sickness, job loss, death, violence, persecution, addiction. Those are some of the things that I was thinking up front. What are some of the different responses that people have when they're facing those dire circumstances? What's sort of the gamut of emotions and responses that could run when, when those sorts of things come up? Run away from it? Anger? What else? Depression? Anxiety? Try to ignore it, yeah. Denial? The three that I was thinking that are three options that just seem to be very natural that it kind of, these three titles I think sort of contain even like the anger and things like that. But one is the control freak option. Things start going wrong 
and I'm going to tighten the reins and I'm going to reel everything in and I'm going to take care of what I need to take care of to make sure I'm in control of this thing that seems like it could get out of control. So there's the control freak option. Don't ask me why I was able to explain it so um, clearly. Um, the second is, is optimistic denial. Optimistic denial. Um, that was kind of what you mentioned, where something horrible is going on, something that is um, seemingly over the top from the norm, something that's hard, something that's dire. And there can be an optimistic denial that, oh, it's not really that bad. Um, this is you know, not a big deal. Um, you kind of just, you know sort of deny what's going on and try to be positive, but that doesn't actually address what you're going through. The third thing I thought about was just hopeless despair. Things go wrong and you just end up, that's where you end up in the anxiety and the depression and you're not filled with hope of what God might do. You are despairing of what God hasn't done that you think he should be doing. And so those three things, control freak, optimistic denial and hopeless despair seem to be some pretty common responses when we're in dire circumstances. So keep these things um, in the back of your mind as we engage the story of Esther. Esther is the last of the historical books of the Old Testament. So we'll make a shift when, when we go into our next book next week. But this is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. This book records one of the most perilous times for God's people in the Old Testament. What we're going to look at in Esther is one of the most perilous times for God's people in the Old Testament. First, a little background. If you're in Esther, just look at chapters 1 and 2 there. Um, A little background. The main detail that we need to take from chapter 1 is, uh, okay, there's a king here. It starts off now in the days of King Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes, and that's easier to say, oddly enough. So we're going to go with Xerxes for the whole night because I don't want to stumble over that and be a distraction. So the first detail that we need to pick up as we dive into this book is to know from chapter 1 that King Xerxes is an extremely powerful king in Persia. The, the extremely powerful king of Persia. And his queen, Vashti, refused to come to him when he beckoned during one of their extravagant parties. I'm, I'm summarizing chapter 1. He calls for his queen. She refuses to go. It doesn't say why. He could have been being a drunk idiot. She could have been in a bad mood. We don't know. It doesn't say. But she didn't go. But what we do see is uh, in 112, we see what this causes in him. And look at 112. Um, Let's see. It says, at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So what happens is Vashti, the queen of Persia, won't go to the king of Persia when he beckons her. That's a big no-no. She should have gone. He gets very upset. He's filled with rage. Um, The anger burns within him and the king consults his counsel. And what they respond with is found in verses 16 through 22, which we're going to read aloud. Then uh, Memekin said in the presence of the kings and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to come before, uh, be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noblemen of Persia and Media, uh, who have heard of the queen's behavior, uh, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. 
and let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamakin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So the response was, I'm going to consult the smart guys that I have around me. They say, well, what she's done, all the women are going to want to defy their husbands. And so he says, let's make an example of her. And so they remove her from her spot as queen. They send out a letter explaining what she's done, what they've done to set an example that that shouldn't be the way that a queen speaks to a king or a wife speaks to her husband. And so that leads to a very thorough search for a new queen in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we see the search for a new queen. And at the end of the chapter, look what happens with Esther, who the book is named after. Look at verses 16 through 18 in chapter 2. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a permission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So an interesting turn of events has happened where King Xerxes of Persia has rejected his current queen. And in her place, a beautiful Jewish virgin orphan named Esther is now the queen of Persia. This is an unlikely occurrence, but this is what's happened. A Jewish virgin orphan named Esther is now the queen of Persia with King Xerxes. This is interesting. So almost immediately, the king reaps some pretty significant benefits from having selected her as a wife. Look at the next verses in in verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her, her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. So Mordecai had wisdom enough to say to her, don't tell them who your, who your people are and who you're a part of. And she, she did as he had commanded. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. She was an orphan. Mordecai took her in, um, uncle, and, and, and raised her as, as his own. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, um, we're going to call him Big Tan and Teresh because you don't want to mess with Big Tan. Um, two of the king's eunuchs, the eunuch named Big Tan, it's pretty funny, who guarded the threshold, they became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. To be clear, whose life did Mordecai just save? The king of Persia. Okay. So, he reaps benefits almost immediately. You may be remembering... At the beginning of the study, I said that this book records the most perilous times for Israel, but things seem to actually be going quite well for them at this point. Esther's the queen, Mordecai saved the king's life, it was recorded in this special book uh, that they call the book of Chronicles for the king, and things are going well. So, um, let's see what happens in chapter 3. Look at verses 12 through 15 in chapter 3. Verses 12 through 15 in chapter 3 say this. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, 
and an edict according to all that Haman commanded, and we're going to learn more about Haman in a minute, was written to the king's satraps, or satraps, or however you want to say that, and the governors of all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. We're talking about 127 provinces here. So this is going out to everyone in Persia. The Persian Empire is the one that swallowed up the Babylonian Empire. This is big. And it went out saying this in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What just happened? I mean, that is a, that is a horrible turn of events. Things seem to be going well, and now an edict has been given by the king, which is, which is irreversible, which we'll look at in a minute, that says, everyone... Man, woman, child, young, old, we are going to kill all of them throughout. They're scattered throughout all the provinces. We're going to, the people there will be responsible for killing them on the same day. We're all going to come together and wipe them out. They're going to wipe the Jews out. So the question that we obviously ask is what in the world happened? What horrible thing happened that could cause such a violent edict? It must have been really bad, Right? Why else would someone want to annihilate the Jews, men, women, children, and even belongings from the earth? And our reason for Haman's movement is found in verses 1 through 6 of the same chapter. Just turn back a little bit. This is why, that's what's happened. The siege has gone forth. We're going to kill all the Jews, women, children, everybody. Why? 3-1. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. That's rational, right? That's a rational response to, to, to such an, an occurrence. This is like mob mentality, like you mess with me, I'm going to kill your whole family kind of stuff. That's the kind of wickedness that we're dealing with here. Um, the, the reason for Haman's movement, when you read it, you just think, man, that, that, that's wicked, right? That's evil. What I don't want us to miss here is the absolute desire, um, dire and desperate circumstances of the situation. The nature of this situation is really bad. Sometimes when we just read something, we can just kind of read it as part of the story and not really dive in. But what I want us to do right now is to consider what it was like for the Jew in that setting. Consider what it was like for those Israelites to hear that edict proclaimed, knowing it was irreversible because it came from the hand of the king. The situation with Israel and Persia 
is in step with the kind of evil that Germany exercised toward the Jews under the leadership of Hitler, maybe worse. Chapter 8 tells us that an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be revoked. That means that there's no reversing the reality that one year from that day, it has been decreed that all 127 provinces of Persia were to come together to wipe out the Jews from the earth. Much like our own constitution, you can't just go and erase something if it didn't work out as you thought it would. All we can do is amend it. Well, that's how it was with, with the king's decree. When he puts that edict out there and it's got the signet ring on it, you, you can't just erase it. You, he can't send out a letter that says, oh, never mind, Haman, Haman was being evil that day. He can't do that. It's already out there. It is going to happen on that day. They will attack the Jews to kill them. There's no reversing it. That's how dire the circumstance is. Imagine being a Jew. What do y'all think were some of the thoughts and emotions that they probably had upon hearing that news? Imagine someone says to you, all the Christians in Greenville on October 9th of 2014 will be killed. Man, woman, children, young, old. What were some of the emotions that went through the Jews at that time? Run. Run. Yeah. What else? Panic. Absolutely. What else? It's not that hard to imagine. Seriously, throw out some words. Anxiety, panic, run. What else? Fear. Shock, disbelief. How in the world could this happen? I want y'all to think about, imagine being married and looking at your spouse, knowing what was coming within a year. I mean, climb into the mind of the Jew here. Imagine being a parent and looking at your children, knowing that it's been decreed by the king that they are to be crushed along with everyone else's children. This is a horrible circumstance. I don't know if anyone in here struggles with anxiety. Let me rephrase that. I'm assuming some people in here struggle with these things. I know I do. Anxiety, panic, depression, futility, and cynicism. I cannot imagine the oppressive burden this news must have been for all of Israel. I can't imagine how the panic must have set in. I can't imagine how deep the depression must have been looking at your family and saying, there's no way that I can save my children. This is from the hand of the king. This is irreversible. I can't imagine how oppressive that and dark and sad that must have been. I cannot imagine being more scared, and I cannot imagine um, feeling less in control of a circumstance. That's where the Jews were. When I say these were the most perilous times for the Jews in all of the Old Testament, it was bad. Think about the other bad things they've gone through. This was very, very bad. So look at how Mordecai and Esther respond. Look at chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud voice and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay sick in sackcloth and ashes. If you find yourself in a dire circumstance, it's okay to lament. It's not always the sign of a strong Christian to just say, well, 
okay, God's good. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to lament. You're to do so prayerfully, and you're to do so in a Godward manner. But it's okay to take that time like they're doing, and they tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, fasting, weeping, lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen, too, was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why this was. Hathak went out to Mordecai to the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go get Mordecai, to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the, king's, into the king these 30 days. So the situation here is Mordecai saying, Esther, it's time for you to stand up for your people. And Esther saying, but if you go to the king, you die. It's, it's a dire circumstance. And in verse 12, it says, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent all at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the Esther version of the Braveheart speech. We had it in Nehemiah, we had it in Ezra, and now we have it in Esther. This, full of your women, your children, your wives, go. That's Mordecai is doing, and that's how he sounds on Veggie Tales. He's got that same accent. It's weird. Um, um, but he, he's, he's saying, who knows? This may be the reason you're here. You may have come to the kingdom for this appointed time. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Like we studied in Nehemiah, they begin with prayer and fasting, but they don't use God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness. They begin with prayer and fasting, and then they make a transition to make a plan and to take action on that plan. And it takes boldness. They have to walk boldly in uncertain circumstances. They have to walk by faith because they can't see. They don't know if the king will hold up the golden scepter. We saw what he did with the previous queen. You don't just want to break the law and assume the best. He's, he's a king of Persia. So they make a plan. They fast and pray. Then they make a plan and then they take action. And in chapter 5, Esther prepares this banquet for the king and for Haman. The king, in, as, he, as she prepares this banquet, he looks out, he sees her, he invites her, they have a talk, and the king, quite taken with Esther, tells her in verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther, question mark, what is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. 
I would say that Esther has serious favor with the king. This is a massive kingdom. And he's saying, I love you so much. You can have up to half of my kingdom if you want. Just tell me, what do you want? What are we, what's, this, what's this event for? Why are you drawing me out here? He's talking to her in that manner. And he has favor, um, she has favor with him. Um, we don't know why, because uh, the reasons are not explicitly mentioned, but Esther decides to wait until the following day where she'll hold another feast with the king and with Haman to, to give her request. So we don't know. Maybe the spirit said, you know what? The time's not right. She was trying to keep in step with the spirit. We don't know. But we do know that some things happened in the next 24 hours that are hugely significant. The reason we're going through the details of this story is if you don't know the details of this narrative, there's no point and there's no time where we can look and say, what's the application to my life? What am I learning here? We have to climb into the story for the majority of tonight. That's the only way to do, um, to, to work through this in Esther. So here, something happens in the next 24 hours that's very, very remarkable. She waits. Well, after the first feast, remember Haman. What have we learned about Haman so far? Just so far, what do you know? Evil? What else? What'd you say? Yep. What else? Oh, yeah, he's self-important. Well, what just happened? The queen invited him to a banquet with the king, and he's feeling pretty good about himself. So he goes out to take a walk through the city. I'm, I'm sure it was just like that. He was very proud, and he went to He was feeling good about things. And so what he did, does is he's in a good mood, and he heads out to the city. And look what happens in verses 9 through 14 of, what is that, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. So to be clear, what he just did he was, his feelings were hurt. He was offended by Mordecai. So he went and brought all of his friends and family and reminded them of how awesome he was. That's what just happened. He called everyone and just to remind them of all of his accomplishments, how many accolades, how many things have been bestowed upon him, just to remind them, I am Haman and I'm pretty awesome. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. He's feeling pretty, remember, he doesn't know that Esther's a Jew yet. He's going to find out, but he doesn't know that yet. And so even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I'm invited by her together with the king again. Oh, and then he says this, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Let's kill him, and then we'll joyfully go to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Do you see the movement? This is all in one night. Went with the king and the queen, felt good about it, went on a walk, saw Mordecai, didn't feel good about it anymore. Called all of his friends and family, same night still. Hey guys, I'm awesome, check this out. But you know what? All that means nothing because Mordecai is still at the king's gate and I can't stand seeing him. 
And the family says, you know what? You should build a, a big old set of gallows to hang him on so that everyone can see him when you kill him. And then go to the feast and have a good time. And that pleased him. That's all in one night. And in that same night, something else remarkable happens. It's all the same night. Look at verse chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. Just before we even dive into this chapter, this is the most powerful king on earth at the time. He has the power over 127 provinces. He can command whether the, king, the queen stays or not, but he cannot command of himself one hour of sleep. He can't do it. He can't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big, Big Tana, uh, Big Montana and, T- and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? This is the same night. Do y'all see what's going on here? This is an incredible narrative. They had this feast. Then the thing happens with uh, Haman. He gets all upset. Builds the, the gallows are being built while the king can't sleep. This is amazing. And he says, so uh, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, they did have an answer, said nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows? I'm sorry, I skipped a line. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. This is awesome. He's reading this book. Whoa, Mordecai's awesome. Yes, Haman, what do you want to talk about? Haman wants to talk to him about killing Mordecai, of all people. And the king's young men told him, Haman there um, is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. The king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman loves honor. I mean, he knows. He's like, oh, I got a good answer for this because hopefully he's talking about me. Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man, who I hope is me, whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry! Take the robes and the horses you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. He says that. Leave out. Those are good. That's a good plan. Don't leave any part out. Go to Mordecai. Lead it. You'll be the noble official that leads him around. Isn't this cool? Awesome. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He had to say that out loud while he's leading Mordecai around. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman, understandably, hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but you will surely fall before him. 
That's, that, that is one night. That's a crazy turn of events in less than 24 hours. So the king couldn't command sleep. And look at what God does with the king's sleeplessness. It's a worthwhile exercise to just consider for a moment, what do you do with your sleeplessness? It's just a passing thing, but I know there's a number of people who struggle with sleeplessness. Sometimes we're not prone to pray or try to listen to the Lord, see if the Lord has anything. We just get frustrated. So next time you battle sleeplessness, which I hope you don't, consider what the Lord did even with the king's sleeplessness here. In chapter 7, Esther finally makes her request. She comes clean with it all. The king says, Queen Esther, what do you want? Up to half of my kingdom. And uh, Haman and his evil plan are revealed by Esther. The king is angry. He leaves. Haman realizes this is bad, and he starts pleading with Esther, not realizing she was a Jew, realizing how he had really stepped in and put his foot in his mouth, and he was pleading with her. And as the king comes back in, he's falling onto the couch that Esther is sitting on, and the king says, oh, you'll just molest my wife while, while you're at it? That's what the king says. That's the word in the scripture. So the way he was pleading was, was easily misconstrued as something else because of the evil nature that, of Haman that had been revealed. That's what he says. And look what happens. The king hangs Haman on the very gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. Those gallows were meant for Mordecai, and the king hangs Haman on them. Furthermore, he gives Haman's house to Esther, who appoints Mordecai over it. So they just swapped gallows for house. But the fact that the two of them were saved was not enough. Remember, the edict that had already gone forth and by law could have been taken back was to kill all the Jews. Now, these two were saved, certainly, but for them, that wasn't enough. So in an effort to right Haman's wrongs, the king gives Mordecai the signet ring and says, draft what you will, do what you got to do. And Mordecai drafts a new edict, allowing the Jews in every city specifically to gather and defend their lives against those who had come against them, to gather and defend their lives. And it's interesting because this news, it says in 816, had an effect on the Jews. And it says that when they heard this new edict come and they heard that Mordecai was giving it, um, which was not the norm, um, with the king's ring, they were, it says in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 16, that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Light and gladness and joy and honor. And in chapter 9, the Jews prevail over their enemies. The people try to kill them, and they defend themselves, and they whoop up on them, and the Jews prevail. And they instituted a new feast called the Feast of Purim, where they remember when it said Haman cast lots about the date that would end up being roughly a year later, and the lots said what the date would be, and the, the lots are called pur or pure, and so um, they had this new feast that they instituted called the Feast of Purim, um, where they celebrate how the Lord delivered them. A few things for us to consider as we close. Turn to Proverbs 16. Hey, y'all hung in there. That was a lot of narrative. Now we can look at it a little bit closer. Proverbs 16. Verse 33 says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Think about Haman casting the lot to figure out when this would happen. What would be the exact date that we would kill all the Jews? 
Now think about what this says, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do we have this kind of faith? I'm not talking about blind foolishness. I'm not encouraging you to go to the casino and it's all in the Lord's hand. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, ta- I'm asking this question. Can we accept from God that which we think is not best, trusting that his wisdom says it is? That's a really hard question because I know that some people in here have been through some really, really ugly stuff in their lives. Can we trust God that when we think something that we're going through is not what's best, to trust that his wisdom says it is for that time? Do we, pres- do we persevere with God when the lots seem to be set against us? Is contentment dependent upon getting our way every time? Isaiah 58.10 says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. This is the second point I want us to consider as we close. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. This verse is saying that in dire circumstances and times of uncertainty, when, when we're most prone to anxiety, when we're most prone to depression and to anger and to fear, we can fight against those things by serving other people. And that's exactly what Mordecai and Esther did. We can fight against that anxiety and that depression by serving other people. If you struggle with the darkness and the oppression that comes with feeling depressed and feeling um, just not like yourself, uh, feeling as if things are set against you, feeling as if there's a hopelessness that's setting in that you don't want to be there, I want you to know the Bible says you can fight against those things by serving other people. By taking focus off of yourself and putting it on others. Philippians says looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It also says that we count others as more significant than ourselves if we're Christians. And it says that when we do, light will rise in the darkness and the gloom will be as the noonday. This was the difference between Esther and Mordecai and Haman. Haman was completely focused on himself the whole time. No matter how much power he had, the focus never left himself. It was all about what he could get out of it and what people thought of him and the perspective that others had toward him as he was in power. And if they were going to forget, he would not hesitate to invite them over for dinner and remind them of how awesome that he is. He was focused on himself, his esteem, his desires, his honor. But Esther and Mordecai pour themselves out for others from the get-go. Their focus is on the people that they're a part of and even those who are not Israelites. Consider, they mourned and then they were they were thankful that their lives were spared, but they, immediately it was not enough. They said, but, but our kinsmen, the Jews, they're still in harm's way. We have to do something about that. And even at the beginning, Mordecai saved the king's life. The king's not an Israelite. He was looking out for him because he heard that two people were going to try to kill him. They risked their own lives to satisfy the desires of the afflicted. They risked their own lives to satisfy the desires of the afflicted. And when their afflicted brothers and sisters received what was given, they were again filled with light, gladness, joy, and honor. This kind of paints a picture of the difference between a self-centered culture and a selfless culture. I'm not talking about like like self-deprecating stuff. I'm talking about the difference between a culture where everyone looks out for other people and one where everyone just looks out for number one. One is ugly. 
And the other has the effect that you pour yourself out for the afflicted. You seek to satisfy the desire of the afflicted. What's the desire of the afflicted? They're being afflicted. It may be comfort. It may be encouragement. It may be help to remove the actual affliction. But when you do that in the midst of a dire circumstance, even if you're prone to anxiety and things like that, you pour yourself out. Those people are filled with joy, honor, gladness, and they go and do the same thing. And it's like this beautiful full circle that happens in a community that looks out for one another. That's where the church is supposed to be. Knowing and being known, looking out for one another, putting others before ourselves, seeking to serve others. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Why would we live any differently? The joy that comes from receiving comes full circle for those who are pouring themselves out for others. And the last point, which I'm, I believe may be one of the most important, is in regard to the providential movement of God. I almost want to add a, a sermon to the awe series, which we're going to be doing that forever, so we may add it, but on the providential movement of God. Um, it's really interesting because we read through a lot of text tonight, and there was something missing. I don't know if anyone caught it. But with the exception of Song of Solomon, Esther is the only book in all of Scripture that doesn't explicitly mention the name of God. Isn't that interesting? With the exception of Song of Solomon, Esther is the only book that doesn't explicitly mention the name of God. However, we see his fingerprints all over it. We see his movement all over it. So often in these anxiety-laden circumstances where hope is hard to come by, Many people look to God for miracles. I mean, think about the worst things you've ever faced. Death of a loved one, for instance, would be an impending death, a sickness. A lot of times we'll pray for just miracles. Just, man, do something that's not normal. Or you're in a dire circumstance. Your life is at risk. We'll pray for miracles. But a lot of times we do that and we forget about the providential movement of God. What I mean is that the God who worked miracles in exercising dominion over Egypt is the same God who isn't even mentioned as he exercised dominion over Persia. Y'all see that? That's the same God. He exercises dominion over Persia. He wasn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. He did the miracles with Egypt, but he doesn't have to do miracles because the providential movement that he has with his people and all of the details that we don't know, that's what it means to walk by faith. If we walk by sight, we walk by what we can see. But if we walk by faith, that means, that implies there's something going on that you can't see and you can trust in the God who's over it. That's what, when we throw those phrases around, we need to know what we're doing. Walking by faith is saying, I can't see it, but I know that something more is going on. I'm going to keep moving forward faithfully with the Lord. We must never forget that God often works through the normal actions of people and the normal order of life. God sovereignly, with no apparent miracles, just a lot of happenings and right circumstances, moves as he pleases. I want you to consider these details. I'm going to read this list that Dever has um, on page 455. Not that that matters. It's just so I don't forget um, about these occurrences and these circumstances that happen in the book of Esther without mentioning the name of God, although we know it is God who is behind them. He says this, Esther just happens to be Jewish, and she just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is put off for almost a year. Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak, 
But when she, but then she happens to put off her request another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They in turn just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately, the gallows. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. And it just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not command a moment's sleep. And he just happened to have a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deeds. He then happened to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. Simply consider for a moment the fact that Mordecai happened not to have been rewarded for saving the king's life. How abnormal is that? And he goes on, he said, I wonder if that ever chafed Mordecai, in parentheses. Anyhow, Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. At that moment, Later on, the king happens to return to the queen, just as Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that could be misconstrued. And the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai just happened to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. Dever goes on to say that apart from believing that God actively and sovereignly rules over our world, the book of Esther becomes a mere celebration of Mordecai's wisdom, Esther's courage, and most of all, chance and luck. That's how it's handled a lot. A lot of handling of the book of Esther is Mordecai is wise, uh, Esther is, is, is bold and strong, and then there's all this insinuation about chance and happenstance. But God's the one over all of this. For me, this is immensely helpful as I walk with people through very real heartache and tragedy. And I hope it's an encouragement to you because we're called to be walking together through a number of things. And there's always something. There's always something going on. There's always something that's happened, is happening, has happened, or is going to happen. And we walk with each other. We bear each other's burdens. We stir one another up by way of reminder. We encourage. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And if there's a particular week where I see too many horrifying things, I can easily slip into the cynical mindset that concludes that people generally stink and life is just a cruel set of unfortunate circumstances and disorder. That is not hard to get there. If you see something really bad happen to someone you really love, it's easy to let the cynicism set in and just say, this world is horrible, people are jerks and wicked, and this is just a big set of unfortunate circumstances. It's easy to get there, a lot easier than you might think. But for me, the book of Esther helps to reinstate a proper sense of awe, remembering that God is working his will in far more circumstances than I realize. Even the circumstances that feel hopeless and unnecessarily evil, like Haman seeking to kill every Jew in the kingdom. You want to kill every Jew in the kingdom. That just seems like an unnecessary level of evil. Yet, God was sovereign over that, and he moved as he saw fit and he carried out his will. Indeed, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. All things means all things.